This episode of Yays of Our Lives is brought to you by Mitsubishi. These are the Yays of Our Lives. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Back in your ears again, beautiful people. How time is flying by. It's been another crazy week for everyone of a crazy year. And in amongst the madness, the neighborhood has truly kept me going. Oh my gosh, I sound like a broken record. I know I say it all the time, but it's true. A few days ago was the anniversary of the Seize the Yay book coming out, which I still can't believe is a thing. And again, some of you have sent the loveliest heartfelt messages about how it's impacted your lives and you've shared parts of your stories and vulnerable moments. And I, I know I really do say it all the time, but the only thing that's quite hard about podcasting is that I don't get to interact with you while you're listening to see your faces. And particularly if you're here each week, I don't get to recognize you and see what you think or how the show is landing. So when you do take the time out of your day to send a message separately, it really does make my day. It just makes me smile so much and I can really feel the presence of the neighborhood. So thank you so much. And as you all know, I launched the book in stage four last year. Who knew a year later we'd still be here? But it was really weird, really weird to not be able to see it go out into the world. But you all have made it so special over the past year. So thank you so, so much. It's just been an absolute joy to build this neighborhood over, particularly over the past 18 months to two years. So as a quick aside, if you do have a moment now to leave a little review, I would be so, so grateful. I always forget to ask and it's always so awkward. So I never really ask. But as we approach our third birthday of the podcast in a couple of months. It would just make my day. I've so loved bringing you two doses of Yay Week in some of the hardest times we've seen. And if I've been having a moment of challenge or low energy or a bit of anxiety going into an interview, which has happened quite a few times, knowing that you guys are getting some Yay at the other end has really lifted me up so much. So thank you to everyone who has bothered to swap platforms and still send a message. And same goes with any feedback or suggestions. As always, I'm open to everything and anything the neighborhood has to say. I just wish there was a live way that you could write down things while you're listening and then it would get sent with that time marker. (laughs) Anyway, if you do have a few moments to spare, I would really, really appreciate it. I've never really put much emphasis on our reviews, but it does actually really help keep us growing the show and bringing more wonderful guests to your ears. So that would be amazing. As for today, we have a fascinating guest for Yays of Our Lives, but just quickly, a few other random neighborhood moments that made me smile this week. The news has been such a heavy place lately, but there are more and more fabulous good news pages out there popping up that make me smile every day. So I thought I would share a couple of things. Firstly, one of our very own neighborhood members, Dana or Dinosaurus, who I think you've heard about before. She's been an active and very generous member since really since the beginning. Very big shout out to you, Dana. Thank you so much for being such an active neighborhood star. Dana initiated a little gifting exchange between members of the Facebook group to brighten each other's day. 
where people would let her know they wanted to be part of it and then she would anonymously assign people to each other, swap addresses and get them to send a little gift. Is that not the loveliest idea? It's like pen pals but for gifting and joy in the middle of a pandemic. I just thought that was so lovely. So if you want to be part of it, send us a DM and I can connect you with Dana and the rest of the group just to make someone else's life. It's like KK, like to make someone else's life a little bit brighter. There have been so many other beautiful examples of humanity lately on a community level too, really grassroots that have been going around. I love that they've been getting some more news time. Of course, Ange and great Annie Judy have continued to go viral. They were on Channel 9. They've made Fox News. That's continued to blow up. Another one I saw on The Guardian was a Shepparton couple who has been donating up to 500 meals every day to help their community endure a big COVID outbreak in that region. The owners of an Albanian restaurant that has been in place for three decades have been working tirelessly to help support the regional city in the midst of the outbreak. And I'm sure there are many, many others working similarly on the ground as unsung heroes in their own communities. I just think that was such a lovely story that one restaurant and one couple have taken it upon themselves. Across the world, you may have seen some pretty terrifying news out of Texas about abortion laws, including the possibility of suing Lyft or Uber drivers who aid and abet an illegal abortion. But Lyft and Uber Uber both announced that they will cover 100% of the legal fees of any drivers who are sued under those laws. And Lyft will also be donating $1 million to Planned Parenthood. I really love when companies use their power in business for societal causes for good. I think corporations can get such a bad rap, but sometimes they really pull through and show the human side of things. So I thought amongst all the quite serious and shocking news that has come out about those legal changes, that that was a really shining light in the news cycle. And one final one for today, as the Paralympics closes, I shared a post a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week, who even knows what time is right now, about Paralympians finally earning equal pay as Olympians for the medals won, but was informed very quickly that this didn't apply in Australia, which was so disappointing. And I was actually really shocked to find that out. But very soon after, it was confirmed that the government will now provide additional support to Paralympics Australia to ensure our Paralympic medalists receive equivalent payments to our Olympic medalists, which is an inequality that um, I think really needed to be redressed. So that was wonderful news. And so they should, as our team performed incredibly with so many beautiful moments coming out of the Games. Again, if you want some good news, just Google heartwarming moments from the Paralympics, the same as you did for heartwarming moments out of the Olympics. It was one of those things I think a lot of people were worried why would you go ahead with them? They're not going to be the same as the normal Olympic Games because of the conditions and the pandemic. But I'm so glad they went ahead and made the effort because humanity shines through like it always does. There was even a pretty tear-jerking wedding proposal when T11 runner Kula Nidrea Pereira Semido, I think I said that correctly, narrowly missed her semifinal qualification after she finished fourth in the women's 200 metres. But at the end of the race on the track was proposed to by her running guide, which was just such a joy. Manuel Antonio Vaz de Vega got down on one knee and made his proposal at the end of the game. That in itself is a heartwarming moment enough to bring you some yay for this week. There are so many more if you just do a little digging, but hopefully those gave you a start for this week. 
As for our guest, as you all know, I've been zipping around in the Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross, a.k.a. the Yamabile, to bring you some incredible stories from neighbourhood heroes. And we have another fascinating guest here today to share a bit more about one of Mitsubishi's partnerships. That makes me so proud to have them as one of our partners in Yay. Mitsubishi renewed its partnership with Disaster Relief Australia earlier this year, providing SUV and all-terrain vehicles to help DRA in its mission to provide rapid disaster response in the way of natural disasters. You may have seen some of DRA's work during the catastrophic bushfires last year, during which the Mitsubishi fleet helped deploy volunteers to five operations across three states. And today we are joined by the National Director of Field Operations to tell us a bit more about it, as well as his own incredible pathway. Tom Howell, welcome to the show. G'day. Thanks for having me. I made it sound like a game show just then. <laughs> Come on down, Howie. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I know that you are actually an incredibly busy person and have some operations on the go at the moment, so I appreciate it so much. I thought uh, before we get into your work with DRA, this show is all about people's pathways and how they end up in the positions that they find themselves. So I won't make you go all the way back to Mount Liddell Mercy College, but I will start. <laughs> just well to creep on you there. <laughs> I would love to start with your time in the army. I'm fascinated by paramedicine. I know you worked in PNG as well. So talk us through a little bit of the backstory before we get into um, disaster relief. Yeah, sure. I, I guess. I- I'd always had a passion for, for traveling. I wanted to see as much of the world as I could when I finished school. You know, I come from a, a family where I've got some military history there. My grandfather was in the military and my mum is, is a nurse, so I sort of had an interest in healthcare as well. I, I didn't have too much interest in paying for university, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so I thought, what's a good way I can, I can get an education and, and travel the world and get some really good experiences? And I had some people I knew that had joined the military and I, I spoke to them a lot about it and they really recommended it, thought it would suit me. I was a real outdoors sort of kid, grew up on a farm, so really interested in, you know, getting out in the in the field and I guess learning about uh, the medical side of the house as well. So I joined the army at, at 19 and did my uh, basic training and then I went on to do my initial employment training as a medical technician. Uh, so then, yeah, obviously did that training there and then moved up to Townsville and did some time at some different units up there. Spent most of my time at the 1st Royal Australian Regiment up in Townsville. I uh, was really lucky to get operational experience uh, over in the Middle East. So I spent quite a bit of time in Afghanistan as a combat medic attached to what we call an omelette, so an operational mentoring liaison team. So I was living with about nine other Australians and about 50 members of the Afghan National Army at a patrol base and basically going on patrol with them and teaching them how to be a, a more effective security force. Uh, so I'd t- teach them medical lessons as well. They didn't have their own medics, but I was the sole healthcare provider for that base. So working fairly remotely and getting to a lot of primary healthcare. So, you know, people get sick as per normal, but then also dealing with a lot of combat trauma. So particularly from improvised explosive devices. So dealing with lots of wounded people and injured people and lots of helicopter evacuations and those sorts of things, but also getting to run some clinics for the locals. So we go down to the local leader's house and I would uh, sort of take my medical kit down there and just run sort of health clinics as well uh, and try and help people with just general health concerns as well as dealing with uh, with trauma. It's fascinating that I think this stuff is so interesting to everybody, but I have a particular weird obsession with the military. I just find it so interesting and fascinating. I'm convinced that there's still time for me to do some kind. I was looking actually on the website the other day. I was like, I could be an artillery officer. Like it's never too late. Never say never. (laughs) That could be interesting. But I think it's so like fascinating that most people know, I mean, obviously we see army medics in movies and we know that you're kind of applying your skills in a way that 
I think I have stressful days at work and then I hear about people like you and I'm like, wow, I really just don't even know what stress is. <laughs> but the experience you would get, like the breadth of experience that you get from doing something like that as opposed to just working back here, I can't even imagine the different ways you would have had to apply your medical skills, like you mentioned, from a kind of GP role all the way through to like trauma and IEDs is not something you encounter in Australia. So I can't imagine no. what you've seen in your time. <laughs> yeah, and I guess there's, there's only so much the training can prepare you. You do as much training as you can. I was really lucky. The uh, doctor that we worked with was fantastic. He was a bit of a mentor to me. And the training that he provided us before we went over, we were really well prepared. But I guess it's it sink or swim in those situations as well because there's only so much you can simulate those. So it was a really amazing experience. Any Anything I've done since then, I wouldn't have done without doing that first it's really sort of pushed me into other areas and put me right outside my comfort zone but um you know you join the army to deploy so it was a sort of culmination of all the training i'd done up to that point and uh, I, I had a really obviously some bad experiences over there but overall it was a really positive experience for me and uh, uh as a you know what was i 21 22 at the time it was a pretty eye-opening for, for a young bloke to get sent over to the middle east and be the only healthcare provider there so working fairly autonomously uh, a lot of the time a lot of responsibility as well Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine the weight on your shoulders. Like at 21, I was like drunk in a nightclub somewhere and you're like the <laughs> primary medical carer for like a whole region. <laughs> oh, we did, we did plenty of that when we got home. So. <laughs> uh, well, you earned it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that's another thing you mentioned that like what you did there set you up for everything else that comes next. I think something that's really fascinating about Pathways is that even though now what you're doing, like the dots connect with hindsight, at the time I can imagine coming home from like the reverse culture shock firstly of being at this level of adrenaline and pace and speed to a very quiet kind of stable time in Australia and then trying to find your place in the world coming back from that, that the next step wouldn't necessarily be as clear. How did you then make a decision about what you were going to do and integrate back into life? Of course, you went back into full-time firefighting, which is not exactly a chill job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, that was, that was a bit later. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting on, on coming back. We went to Dubai first and we did a sort of decompression time in Dubai just to sort of readjust to society as such. And even just going to the supermarket being surrounded by people is a very different experience to what you're used to in Afghanistan. So, we did a really good job of that. And then uh, we had a leave period when we got home and, and look, I, I came back to work in the military, but, you know, I still enjoyed it. I moved into the training side of things instead. I was working, um, I guess, running combat first aid courses and doing lots of training within the space there. And I really enjoyed the training. Uh, but I got to a point where I'd sort of achieved everything I, wa I wanted to achieve in the military. And I guess it's one of those things you can stay in forever, but you sort of, the longer you stay in, the more likely you are to stay in forever. You become a little bit institutionalized. And it, it is it is a tough life if you, you know, if you want to have a family and things and, you know, you can find yourself moving around the country without really wanting to, I suppose. And, you know, there's a lot of people with, with uh, military families and their kids have been to four or five different schools and it's really tough on, on family. And I'd done everything I was set out to do. So I used the opportunity through the military to finish university. With my medical training, I already had my diploma in, in nursing and paramedical science. And then I used the opportunity with, through the military to finish off my Bachelor of Paramedical Science, which was really good. And then started looking at, at options to get out. And, and as you said, it's it's not easy to go into a, an office type job um, when you've been in the military. Um, so I was lucky enough to have a really good transition. Uh, one of my other friends who was a medic who'd also uh, discharged fairly recently, he gave me a call and said he, uh, they were looking for paramedics over in Papua New Guinea. And it seemed like a really good uh, idea for me to do that. It was a really sort of natural transition. And, and nearly everybody I was working with over there was ex-military. So it was a sort of soft exit out of the military for me uh, and spent nearly two years working over in, in Papua as a remote area paramedic. And again, being primary health carer on a remote mining site, 
and then yeah, obviously dealing with with any type of trauma um, that's associated with uh, onshore gas and oil mining. I was lucky enough to move into the sort of construction phase, and so not the actual gas and oil, but we would literally fly around in a helicopter until we found an area where someone could hang off the skid and, and jump onto the ground, and then we drop a <laughs> drop a couple of chainsaws down, and then we'd, we'd sleep in the jungle till we cleared enough area to, to land a helicopter, and did a lot of. Uh, trekking through the, the jungle in Papua New Guinea and dealing with some really strange things, you know, lots of tropical illnesses and injuries that I hadn't experienced before. And I guess uh, getting to work really closely with the locals over there was really handy. So I actually got two adopted brothers from Papua New Guinea. My parents were missionaries there in the in their, uh, late 70s. So it was really good for me to be able to get over there. And I was lucky enough that my brothers taught me the language, top pissing over there. So I was able to speak with the locals and I had a really, really good experience in Papua New Guinea and spent, spent two years doing that. But uh my, my partner, she said, I thought you got out of the army to spend more time at home and I was actually spending more Less. and more time away in, in Papua New Guinea. So, she said, get a normal job. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was – so, two years of that was, was sort of enough. And then I did try, I guess, my, my first sort of normal job. I, I started work as a specialised health trainer. Uh, again, I liked, really liked doing the instructing in the military, so I thought it was a natural progression. Uh, so I moved to a, to an RTO and started delivering everything from, from basic first aid training right up to specialized health training and then worked my way up in that company to be the general manager of, of training there and um, I guess facilitating training all across the country with a national team and really doing some specialized health training for a lot of the police forces in Australia and um, I guess things that more sort of my military style, so ballistic wound management, gunshot wound training, those sorts of things. Um, <laughs> so, so cool. Yeah. Huh, enjoyed enjoyed that and then um yeah i guess I'd, I'd always had an interest in the in the fire brigade i had some friends who had transitioned out of the military and they were in the fire brigade so they absolutely loved it i sort of had the option whether to go into you know civilian paramedic role or, or fire brigade and i guess i wanted to move into a new area and i was looking at a long-term career and the fire brigade is a, is a really uh, good career to to sort of everyone or well, so many people in there have done 30 years plus in the fire brigade no one tends to leave it's a very i guess a Difficult to get into. That's the hardest thing about it, I think. But I was lucky enough that my background and my, you know, all my experience sort of lent itself towards that kind of organization. And uh, yeah, I became a member of the Metropolitan Fire Brigade and now we've transitioned to Fire Rescue Victoria, but I work yeah, full time as a, as a firefighter in the background while I'm not doing Disaster Relief Australia things. Yeah. So I guess. <laughs> Sounds like you hate a challenge. Like you really just like to coast in life and be comfortable. <laughs> oh, I'm not one to sit around, I tell you. Um, and I actually, I'm actually on leave at the moment from Fire Brigade. We have rostered annuals and uh, coincided with the Melbourne lockdown. So I've been climbing the walls here, to be honest. <laughs> oh, I can't even imagine how you're coping or not being able to like swing out of a helicopter into a jungle. <laughs> no, well, we got out this morning first thing, straight back to the gym, so that was good. But um, yeah. yeah, it's uh, those <laughs> things you got to adapt to. I tend to fill my time with other things, so I, I still work for the same training company as a special projects officer on the side. So I do sort of curriculum development, just writing courses and those sorts of things. And then obviously my role with Disaster Relief Australia keeps me pretty busy. And surely the book is coming out soon. I mean, oh, you're not the first person to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder I, I, why. <laughs> I'm not sure I've got the time, to be honest, as yet. But, That's true. Um, you need a ghostwriter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, I, I, Disaster Relief Australia is probably my other, my, my passion as well. I, I've been doing it as a volunteer for a number of years. I sort of, you know, as all good things, start over a beer with a mate. One Anzac day, he said, oh, can you help me out with some, with some training for this veteran organization that uh, I work for? Oh, no worries. I'll give you a hand. So I sort of helped him out and then he said, oh, I'm going away for a bit. You might step in as the national training manager. So, I, I took over that role for a little bit. I guess I was I was doing a training manager role professionally as well and I sort of I felt like I was 
doing something for free that I was getting paid for and I was doing the same job twice and I wasn't enjoying it. But uh, DRA uh, afforded me the opportunity to apply for the Director of Field Operations role, which was a whole new area for me. So I um, put my hand up for that and I've been doing that for the last few years and uh, absolutely love it. It still keeps me tied in with the veteran community and we really get to get out on the ground and do some really good work in the communities we work with. So I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that if you know, disaster strikes in our backyard, you know, we all know that someone is going to come and fix it all. Like this like, yeah. you know, omnipresent force that knows when <sighs> trees fall down and things stop working, but no one actually, I think, appreciates who it actually is and that someone is organizing all that and making it happen. <laughs> so how did it come about? And I mean, I was meant to fly up to Port Macquarie to do one of these interviews after the floods. You were sure. working on the storms up the hill in Victoria. <laughs> how do you sort of work out where your field operations are at any one time and can you know the general public get involved to help out you mentioned it's a volunteer organization and i know mitsubishi has been providing vehicles to allow the sort of spread of people between what is often quite remote locations how does it all work yeah that's a really really good question uh and i guess a lot of it falls under my remit as the director of field operations so I, i have under me a planning cell that's always monitoring things across our wider area of operations so looking at intelligence from overseas, looking at intelligence within Australia from a number of different agencies. And I guess, you know, things like, you know, watching the news is another good one as well. We generally know when something big is happening. And essentially when something happens, uh, our planning team does up what's called an ISR or initial situation report. And they'll issue that out through field operations. And we'll take a look at it and think, is this within our remit? Is this within our capability? Is this something where we think we can help? And I guess an area that we really shine in is an area that's not Yes, we've done some really big profile things, the floodings up in Townsville and obviously the bushfires in 2019, 2020. But sometimes it's those smaller disasters that are in the news for two or three days and they're forgotten about because there's not sort of, unfortunately, you know, fortunately for us, there's no loss of life. But unfortunately for the disaster, it gets forgotten quite quickly. If there's not a huge loss in, I guess, damage cost or uh, a loss in life, then it tends to stay in the media for longer. And we do some really good work in those communities that feel as if they're forgotten. So we look and say, who are the other agencies in there? Is there a larger government response? Do we need to tie in with other disaster agencies or are we going to be the only ones there? And, And often a lot of the operations we've done, there's been an initial surge, but then after a few weeks, everybody else is gone and the community is still really hurting post the disaster. So we can come in there and and do some really good work. And, and in saying that, we do tie in really well with other organizations as well, like the flooding up in, in Townsville and, and the, obviously the catastrophic bushfires. We work with a lot of other agencies. So we've always got the feelers out and looking at where we can deploy and I guess new, new areas as well. We just launched our, well, we launched our first operation, Operation Woods over in Western Australia at the start of the year. Yeah. And it ended up being our longest operation working the, uh, Shire of Mundaring and Swanshire, and we actually launched our Perth disaster response team at the same time. So we already had some members over there, but we didn't have a, a leadership team there. And while we were running the operation, I was actually lucky enough to get over to that one. We actually built a leadership team in place and, and left an organic disaster response capability over there as well. So we're always expanding into new areas. And I guess, you know, the more, you know, many hands make light work, we're always trying to encourage volunteers to join, but also you know, volunteers. So there's a big space within Australia for spontaneous volunteer management. And quite often after a disaster, a lot of people want to help, but they don't know what to do. And, you know, we can put a leadership structure in place and a safety structure in place to say, okay, come along and we'll, we'll get you on the ground helping out in a safe manner and, and be able to help the community out. And that ranges from everything, you know, maybe you're not physically fit, maybe you can sit on the barbecue at lunchtime and cook the food or, you know, you can work in, <laughs> 
you know, stores distribution or even welfare checks. You know, a lot of the work we do is in welfare. It's not necessarily that the boots on the ground and, you know, chainsaws and, and plant equipment. It might be sitting down having a cup of coffee with a veteran who might have lost everything or, you know, over a beer, having a chat with a veteran who, who's, you know, bottled it all up and, and just wants someone to talk to. So we have a really big role within the community in that space as well. And, you know, it's, it's a great feeling at the end of the day to put down the chainsaw after being cutting trees all day. But um, you can get just as many moments just from chatting to people and just making those sort of human connections with people and, and letting them feel that someone is there and someone is listening and, and ready to help out. So that's a big bit of what we do. So everywhere we go, we're trying to expand our volunteer base. We are a veteran-led organization, but anybody can join. So our majority of our, our membership base is veteran and emergency services. But as our capabilities have expanded, we realize that there's so many capabilities within the public and private sector that we could utilize that are really effective when it comes to disaster relief management. And yeah, we just try and harness whatever capabilities we can to to have a better effect on the ground. I love how I was nodding at you before as if I knew how good it felt to put your chainsaw down at the end of the day. I was like, yeah, uh, it does. It feels great. <laughs> <laughs> definitely don't put me down for that. <laughs> but there are definitely uh, other things I could do, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I look at some people probably laugh when I say that. I often don't end up on the chainsaw. I, I unfortunately end up in the incident management team sort of telling everyone else what to do in that <laughs> sense but um you know when I, when I can I love to get out on the ground and and, uh, and help out as much as I can I think that is something that's really like it's wonderful to see that when there isn't a huge disaster or even a you know a local disaster that people's generosity I think always will surprise you how much you know action people want to take and how willing they are to give their time it's the logistics that's really hard because you don't know how to get there or what they need or what gaps are, you know, filled. So I think organizations like DRA who actually do all that and sort of will have someone like you going, we need this here and that there and this isn't needed, but that's needed over there. Like that's the bit that is so overwhelming and it, and it means that often people who are willing to help can't like get connected with the help that is needed. And during the bushfires, one of my really good friends actually who's been on the show a couple of times who was in the storm in the Dandenongs recently. Mm. So I thought actually you might end up at her house because her house was completely wrecked. Her and my husband started Relief Run last year for the bushfires, which was, yeah, yeah, the the virtual run. And it was so, um, 19,000 people wanted to help. They just didn't know where Mm. they could go. So knowing that you can sign up, like is there a database, a volunteer database that you just join? Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. So just on our on our website, you can register as a as a volunteer and then go through the uh, volunteer process. If it was just to do spontaneous volunteering on an operation, we would have that all set up in place in the operation. We would appoint a spontaneous volunteer manager who would be there to you know take people's names, enrol them into the organisation, and you know just for that period that they're available. Uh, and of course, then we we try and enrol them as full members if they enjoy it and they get a lot out of it. You know, we really focus on our, our member experience as well to make sure that if people are giving up their time for free, that they're getting something out as well. And, and uh, it, it definitely, it, the organization gives you back way more than you put into it. It's just one of those things. And a key thing we do at the end of the day is, is reflection. So light bulb moments where we go around to everyone in the group and talk about uh, that light bulb moment they had during the day. And there's, you know, there's quite often tears out there from some <laughs> you know, pretty, pretty hard military veterans, um, but just what, what they get out and the feeling they get from helping people is, uh, is really good. And it gives people that sense of purpose. I think that's one of our key things, particularly for veterans. A lot of veterans, when they leave the military, become disengaged and they don't, they find they lose that purpose. And this, um, we, we use, you know, semi-military terms and it has a military feel to our structure, the way we have our leadership structure. And it's really familiar for veterans. Of course, civilians and emergency services fit into that really well. 
also. But uh, that sense of purpose is, is really important for our, our veterans. Well, we in the military do really appreciate when you use words like deploy for operations. I really felt quite at home when you use that word. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, and, and look, we get new people coming in and we have our, uh, I guess, our, our forward operating base set up and, you know, there'll be a whiteboard there with, you know, the daily sort of what we do because they don't have Revali at a certain time. And uh, even just seeing that, it makes the veterans really at ease to, to have some familiar terms. And you see them start talking, they share the same language with people. And it's, it's really good to see. And, you know, I've seen people come to day one of an operation or not even operation, just our core operations, which is our induction. And, you know, we do an intro. We think that's really important to share your story. And, and uh, you know, seeing someone, you know, tear up as they're trying to speak and saying, I haven't felt this comfortable in a room full of people in 20 years since I left the military. So it's 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 pretty amazing uh, what the organisation does. Yeah, I think that's wonderful that the it's not just the services that you're providing to people affected by disasters, but the platform you create for volunteers to actually feel like they have some purpose in life because that transition backwards back into society. I don't think people who haven't known someone who's come back or who aren't a military family or don't have friends or exposure to the military like don't see the reverse culture shock. That happens mm. because you can't, like there's this book that I love, I talk about it all the time, and it's very, I'm sure, very embellished, but it's called Emergency Sex and it's uh, it was banned in the UN bookshop. I don't know if you've heard of it. No, I haven't. A story of four UN workers who end up in the same seven war zones or something through the 90s, like Somalia, wow. Rwanda, Haiti, and just how they all are struggling through bombs and like you know, gunshots and everything to get to safety and then they get to safety and they just go back because they're like, I can't, I don't know yeah. how to be without disaster anymore. I don't know how to operate without that. And that I've always thought is interesting because then knowing friends mm. now who have come back from Afghanistan or Iraq, I'm like watching to see like, of course, how would you cope in calm? It's just not your status quo anymore. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I, I tried the sort of corporate thing for a while and I, you know, I think I was, I was good at it and I was, I was doing okay with it, but it wasn't, it wasn't me. It wasn't you know, I, th I think the fire brigade uh, gives me that sort of, you know, oh, not 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 danger, but adrenaline. I suppose danger. it's still, <laughs> yeah, like an adrenaline junkie or anything. But it's still, it it sort of suits me a lot more than you know putting a, a shirt and tie on every day. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and just one final question from from a more broad perspective. I think stress management in the last eighteen months has probably become more important and more necessary for the world generally mm. than it ever has been. And obviously it's not as acute as perhaps paramedicine or firefighting, but I always am so fascinated by how you keep your cool in situations. Like you watch military people in the most dire situations just have this precision that comes through of focus and calm, ability to block out all the trauma that's going on around you. Do you have any tips for people on managing stress or any kind of negative feelings that are going on at the moment just from your experience of having to get through that? Yeah, definitely. I, I think particularly under times of stress, uh, I think a really sort of key thing that I always think of is, you know, during times of stress, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. So, I, I always think about that. The, the better your training is, you know, it's, it's embedded within you and if you've got certain steps you follow, then it becomes automatic and, and you know, you can just focus on, on doing what you need to do. And I think that's really important. And it's something I always focus on in my training that, uh, you know, mechanical skills, you need to practice them under stress. You need to do things under times of stress. 
And there's things you can do, you know, we teach sort of square breathing and things or box breathing as it's called as well. You know, in times of stress, the one thing you can control is your respiratory rate. So, you know, breathing in for four seconds, holding for four seconds, breathing out for four seconds, and everything else will then slow down as well. So the only thing you can control is your respiratory rate, but in turn, that'll lower your blood pressure and your heart rate as well. So that will help you be able to function. And when we look at the sort of combat mindset of stress as well, what we don't want to get into is a red zone, which we call it is when you lose your, your fine motor skills and you get tunnel vision and you lose your ability to operate under stress. I guess that's for high sort of stress situations. But I think for generally the last sort of 18 months and the times you find yourself in, I think you do be able to find joy in small things. You got to take joy in small victories. You need to focus on, you know, I'm sort of big on my health. You know, if, if I can't get out and go to the gym or go for a hike, well, I can control my diet and I can do 500 push-ups at home, let's say, for example. So, you know, there's things you can do and you need to sell you know, celebrate those, not in a row, but you, you know, you can celebrate those small wins and, you know, look, look for things throughout the day and, and have a routine that you can stick to and say, okay, well, you know, I can control my sleep during this time. So I'm going to make sure I read before bed and I'm going to make sure that I get my eight hours of sleep because, um, you know, sleep is so important for your overall well-being, as is your, your physical health for your mental health as well. And I guess it's, it's easy to get in the habit of just sitting on the couch and flicking through the different Netflix and Prime and Stan or whatever you've got. But, all of them. You know, I have all of them. You also need to set some time aside for mindfulness. Yeah, I have all of them too. And I, I sit there and go, oh, there's nothing on. <laughs> yeah, I've <laughs> um, run out of the internet. I've been, you know, sitting there for too long. So I think just, you know, taking some time away from, from technology is important. And look, I'm a massive video gamer as well. I love playing video games. It helps me de stress. But uh, I make sure I've got time away from, you know, technology, reading a book, going for a walk and uh, just getting outside and, and getting as much fresh air as you can and some vitamin D as well. You know, when we're, when we're in lockdown, it's really important. So, and, and yeah, finding, finding joy in small things is really important. I think, you know, you can, it's easy to get into that sort of mindset where small things, they can all start to overwhelm you. But if you can take little bite-sized chunks out of each of those problems, you can probably fix some of them and then the bigger problems are easy to handle. I think it's been really easy for people to become overwhelmed uh, during this time. And, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult, you know, being away from your family and, and not being able to see them and not being able to go out with your friends. But, you know, there is other things you can do. And, and I've made sure I'm really active on, on Zoom and, and having catch ups with my friends and, you know, playing games with people over social media and Zoom and those sorts of things as well. And, you know, I guess try not to get in a tunnel of just sitting there flicking through social media for six hours a day and, and, and not uh, getting outside. I guess is one of the things that I would recommend. Yeah, absolutely. And very last question, which is actually on that topic, it's recommendations from each guest. So things that like books or video games or little things that you saw that brought you a little bit of joy for anyone else who is looking for ways to just make themselves smile in a tough time. Yeah, I think a, a really good book that I really enjoyed is called Tribe, particularly for ex-military people. It's about sort of disconnect when leaving the military because your, your military is your tribe. It's a really unique job in that it's not a job, it's a, it's a lifestyle and it's, it's part of your identity, uh, I think. Uh, and you'll find a lot of people, uh, I'll be 20 years out of the military and they'll have a new job, but they'll say, oh, what do you do? Like, oh, I was in the army for 10 years, but now I do this. Yeah, yeah. It's still the biggest part of, of their identity. And uh, I guess people lose that tribe when they get out of the, the military. I think it really talks about how you, how you build a tribe around yourself and how you have those sort of key connections in your life that help you, you know, maintain your, your mental well-being as well. I think that's really important. And other recommendations, I guess just exercise, exercise, exercise. That's my main one. Um, <laughs> 500 push-ups. There's, there's such, such a strong link between your, your physical and mental health. And, you know, I, I think as well, take some time to learn something every day is another one as well. You know, I find it people go, oh, you know, I wish I learned how to play guitar. Go learn how to play guitar then. You're never too old to learn something new. 
learn another language, you know. You know, there's so many apps and things on your phone that you can use to, to engage your mind and, and keep your brain active. Even if it's something you used to do, if you, you know, who can do long division anymore? Well, you know, pick it up again. You'll learn it again really quickly. But keep your brain active and, and learn something new every day. I think a, a day where you don't learn something is a day wasted. So there's always something you can do and you can engage your mind in different ways. And as long as you're engaging your mind and your body, then you'll be doing pretty well, I think. That is excellent advice. I'm going to make you give me Papua New Guinean lessons as my next hobby. <laughs> sure, can do. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining, Tom. This was absolutely wonderful. I will pop some links to signing up to be a DRA volunteer in the show notes for anyone who's interested. And I might see you there. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And look at our website. Anyone who's interested, you know, reach out to us. We can answer any questions. And, you know, we're only as good as the people we have. And we have some amazing people and some amazing partners. And, and people like Mitsubishi have really allowed us to do some incredible work. You know, we traditionally have to spend a, a lot of money on, on vehicles because we don't have our own fleet. And uh, a partner like Mitsubishi coming and giving us 4x4 vehicles has just expanded our capability so much and allows us to put more people on the ground, more time into the community, which is fantastic. So uh, I'd guarantee you if you join up with with DRA you'll get a lot out of it and uh, you'll go on operation then you'll be asking when the next one is as everyone is so uh, it's a yeah, great thing and, and thanks so much for having me it's been a pleasure oh amazing thank you so much don't worry <laughs> 